I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Everything else I've ever done has been controlled. Every frame is controlled. But I would like to take a whole story and make the picture as though it were a documentary. The actors are going to be improvised. Nobody's ever done it before. Our show today is That's So Jake, Reaping Orson Welles. Our opening song is Group Shot. Performed by Buddy Rich off of the 1967 album, The New One. Buddy Rich will accompany us throughout. Our last show highlighted the lost Orson Welles film, It's All True, with filmmaking taking place in 1942 in Brazil. And today we offer a bookend. Netflix has just released a version of another Welles project that was never completed, though this one was not so much lost as held hostage. It's called The Other Side of the Wind, and it's another version of what some might refer to as the Confessions of Orson Welles. For here, as at the beginning, it's Rosebud that haunts this house. But in seeking Welles, in our grappling with hints and slights and symbols, our searches only reflect us back to ourselves. Welles introduced us to mirrors in 1941 in Citizen Kane, and we're caught within them again here in 2018 via filming that ended in 1976. The Other Side of the Wind stars John Huston as aging director Jake Hannaford and an ensemble cast that resembles Wells's Mercury Theater. And much of the script seems to directly reference Wells's own life. And so, once again, we search for a key. Returning to Interchange to help us think about The Other Side of the Wind is Jonathan Rosenbaum, film critic and scholar and author of many books, including Discovering Orson Welles. And he has two new books about to come out, both collections, a two-volume work called Cinematic Encounters. Volume 1, which will consist of interviews and dialogues, is scheduled to be out in December, and Volume 2, subtitled Portraits and Polemics, is slated for June 2019. Both are being published by the University of Illinois Press. Let's begin with Orson Welles in a 1960 interview talking about the most overrated job in filmmaking, the director. First of all, I think directing is the most overrated job in the world. It's the only one I really love in show business, but I think it is tremendously overrated. A director ought to be the assistant and the foundation of a performance, you know? But I do think that there's a, it's been overblown. There are more bad directors at work than people know because it's the only profession, movie directing, not stage directing, the only profession in the world where you can be incompetent and go on being successful for 30 years with nobody ever discovering it. The only job that a director can do in a film of real value is to do something more than what will happen automatically. If the story is put on, if the actors are good, they find themselves around the cutter, the cameraman, everything. If a director is something of a cameraman, something of a cutter, something of an actor, something of a writer, and preferably completely a cameraman, completely a writer, completely an actor, then he, his contribution is a real one. Otherwise, he's simply the man that says, action, cut, take it a little slower, take it a little faster, and nobody will ever discover that he doesn't know, know anything. 
That's So Jake on Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind with Jonathan Rosenbaum on Interchange on WFHB. Jonathan Rosenbaum, welcome back to Interchange. Hey, back. Hey, um, thanks for joining us again. It's uh, great to always have you on the radio with us. Uh, I'd like you to comment a little bit on the opening of the show. Uh, what do you think of Wells selling this film as an improvisation? Well, I, that was a, something that he... That was a rid, part of the original idea when he was trying to raise money, I think in the mid-60s. But, but later on, he actually wrote a full script. And in fact, 13 years ago, the full script was published in Europe, actually, in English and in French. And there are several versions of the script. And I would say that virtually all of them correspond pretty closely in the dialogue to what we have in the film. So as it turns out, it was not really improvised, except for you know, a few moments, you know, like, for example, when uh, Henry Jaglin is talking with Paul Mazursky, that's improvised, you know, and a few things. And there are a few maybe, like, slight changes in what people say. But it's basically scripted. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, the documentary that's been circulating with the film by Morgan Neville, you know, has somebody say there was no script, but that's because the person who says it didn't see a script, but there certainly was a script. Uh the film within the film was was scripted much more loosely than the party sequences. Hmm. So uh, I think uh, one thing that's very interesting is that when people talk about, you know, trying to honor Wells' vision, what's confusing about that is that Wells' vision is something that probably changed several times a day (laughs) whenever he was working. You know, like when he was editing, when when he was shooting. So I think it's you know, it's impossible to say, you know, when we say what Wells' version would have been, I think it's, you know, it's a question of when he would would have done it, and uh, it might have been a very different film in certain ways, but at the same time, I think, having worked as a consultant on this version, I think that they were, for the most part, very, uh, you know, that they really honored, I think, the material and the direction of the material, that they, you know, that they had. So right. I think it's uh, it's not to criticize the work that was done, although I have a few differences with, you know, the editing. Sure, sure. Well, I think you make the point that it's, uh, there are three versions of, of Wells' own, uh, own film, Othello, that Wells made himself. So Wells is always uh, tampering with Wells also. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, how how long uh, has this film been in the works? Well, I don't know. I think the uh, the point when he's sort of like trying to pitch the film. There was a documentary made with the Maisel brothers. I think around 1966, and at that time it was going to be about bullfighting. I mean, you know, it was a you know it it, it evolved from a project that was going to be about the bullfighting scene in Europe, and then. Once he arrived with Oya Kodar and her, her first visit to the United States, it sort of changed. First, uh, uh, through a concept and a particular story of hers that was combined with Wells' story, and then with her decision to play a Native American, which was her idea based on an incident that occurred to her 
when she was in Hollywood for the first time. Hmm. Um, she was actually being driven around by somebody who was supposed to show her the sights. Well, hired this writer, a, a, a driver, for, to drive her around. And when they stopped for a light or something, there was a Native American who was jaywalking, and the guy who was driving yelled out a kind of racial epithet at him. He said something like, move your ass, you red son of a bitch, or something like that. And Oya was, was so offended, she got out of the car and said, I don't want you to drive me anymore. Hmm. And But she was very curious about this stocky, short man who, you know, who occasioned this incident. Mm -hmm. And she started to try to discreetly follow him. And then she felt that he was, she was making him nervous. So she, she felt she was intruding and stopped following him. Mm. But, it, but anyway, that inspired her to play a Native American. Okay. And she, yeah, she's referred to as a red or a red Indian in the film, I, I, I believe. That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so the film's been uh, been ex in existence in some form for quite some time. Wells starts to film, I think, in 1970. Principal photography goes for about six years. I think that's right. Can you give us some uh, a brief description of the film? I know it's uh, that's hard to do, as it's there's a lot going in and uh, on in it. But uh, as briefly as you can, kind of give us a synopsis of the film. Well, there are two blocks of material, and the film alternates between them. One of them is the 70th birthday party of Jake Hannaford, this uh, director who has an unfinished film played by John Huston. And uh, the other block of material is bits and pieces of the film that he was making, which they need completion money for, and which over the course of the film they're not able to get. Although, uh, um, and the original conception, according to Oya Kodar, who's spoken to me at some length about the, you know, the conception, is that it would be really the two blocks of materials which should have been given equal precedence. So that, in other words, it's not, it's not just brief interludes that show the film within the film, but that that it should be as prominent as the party sequence. Hmm. As it is in the film now, it's, you know, there's more of the party sequence, but they, Part of my role as a consultant was to represent what I felt was Oya's point of view and to make the scenes of the film within the film somewhat longer mm -hmm. than they were in, their, in earlier cuts. Now, there, the two, two segments are, are, are distinctly different. One, uh, something like Cinema Verite, uh, trying to capture uh, a bunch of uh, cineasts and film buffs, etc., at this party, uh, taking uh, video of... Uh, Hannaford and that being cut together as kind of a, a film about that party and then uh, Hannaford's film itself is shown within the movie in those clips and that's um, drastically different as a style so there are two very drastic that's styles right. in, in the fact, movie. That's right, the film within the film is all shot in color and 35 millimeter whereas the other, the other material was shot in 16, Super 8 black and white and color and in a way, the method methodology of the scene at the party, although it's a very rapid cutting and it's different from Wells' other films, you could still say that the whole idea of the false documentary, the uh, pseudo-documentary, is something that was part of Wells' equipment from the beginning. I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's in War of the Worlds, you know, the very famous right. audio broadcast about the Martian invasion. It's in the newsreel at the beginning of Citizen Kane. Right. It's... Uh, even the stage production of Julius Caesar, which was done in contemporary dress and 
you know, in order to reflect what was going on in, in, in right. terms of Italian fascism at the right. time. Yeah, you can say all that. Of these, they, all of these things are, are really part, something that Wells worked in a lot. Even in Ephra Faith, which was made, you know, during the time, in fact, before, well, after most of the material in uh, The Other Side of the Wind was shot. Mm, there's even in... in that, that, that also is, you know, and contains a lot of pseudo-documentary. Right, and even in uh, Citizen Kane, you could say that the, the whole idea of Kane is that he's making up the news as he goes. That's right. Yeah. So, so, I, that, I think one thing that's important is that it's not, it should not be regarded as the way it's been advertised as well as the last film, The Other Side of the Wind. Mm. He was working on lots of other projects, and uh, calling it the last film is really an advertising thing. And, of course, that's what's always tricky with Wells. In order to sell the film, they have to sort of, like, uh, figure out what sells it. But that's not the same thing as what it is, you know? And uh, and that's something we're still figuring out, and I think it may, we may take a while before we figure it out. Which is nothing new with Wells. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Well, it's part of why they did the uh, documentary to go along with it, right? Is to sell the film, you know, by having Alan Cummings uh, um, sex it up a little bit. Yes, although I think what's unfortunate is it doesn't really, I think, prepare you very well for what the film is. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. part of the idea of the film being improvised, you know, is the impression left by the documentary. But the, the documentary is not scholarly. Unlike the uh, film, the, there's another documentary that's being distributed by Netflix, which is, I think is much better, which is called The Final Cut for Orson. And it's only about 50 minutes long, but that's something that I think that, to my mind, is quite accurate. Whereas what's misleading, I think, about the documentary, in my, in my opinion, is that it's, um, first of all, it's trying to imitate Wells' style, which is always a dangerous and <laughs> difficult thing to do. But also, it's, you know, this is the paradox. I think there are a lot of people in America actually dislike Wells, but don't realize that they dislike him. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny kind of thing, but I mean, you know, it's the reason why the worst biography of Wells is is, is, the, is the most popular one, David Thompson's, mm -hmm. you know, Rosebud, Rose which is yeah. not even researched, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's but the point is, is it gives a negative view. Right. And, and the documentary had to sort of pitch itself to people who see Wells as this crazy guy, right. you know, who who uh, was out of control. Yeah, well, he's a decadent, failed fat man, and we like to make fun of those people. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it is there are two ways of looking at Wells. You could look at Wells as a successful artist, which is the way he's regarded in most of the world, mm -hmm. or you could regard him as a bad business investment, <laughs> right. the way it's usually regarded in America. Right. And it seems to me that it's, to me, it's not very interesting to talk about him as a business investment, right. good right. or bad, you know? Right. It's not, that should be of concern to the people who make the money or don't make the money out of it. Right. But it's not of, it's not of very great interest to me. I'm interested in Wells as an artist. Right. It's time for a break right now. This is another from Buddy Rich, Billy's Bounce, off of Very Live at Buddy's Place, 1974. Buddy Rich has a kind of parallel life with Orson Welles, also a child prodigy. He was born two years after Welles and died two years after Welles in 1987. Stay with us on Interchange for more on the other side of the wind with Jonathan Rosenbaum.
Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is That's So Jake, Reaping Orson Welles. And our guest is film critic, author, and Welles expert, Jonathan Rosenbaum. Uh, we went to the break uh, talking about trying to understand Wells or misunderstanding Wells, one as a, uh, an artist, a successful artist, and one as a failed businessman, a successful artist to the rest of the world, a failed businessman to the U.S. Um, Jonathan, we were planning to do a clip in that segment, and I'd like to go ahead and go back to it. So let's, let's start out with a clip that I wanted to play in segment one. That clip uh, is from the film, and it's a, a bit from the film that highlights kind of one of the framing devices used in the film, and it it's the character Billy Boyle, played by Norman Foster, who's a member of director Jake Hannaford's entourage, and he's been sent to a meeting with the studio head Max David, played by Jeffrey Land, so he can talk him through a preview of what Hannaford uh, has shot so far of, of this artsy film that he's trying to make. Uh, so there are, in this clip, there are bits of dialogue that happen throughout the sort of the first 25 minutes of the film, uh, watching these two guys, uh, Billy Boyle and... Uh, Max David watching the film and talking about Hannaford's film. And I've stitched them together and compressed them a little bit. So, um, and cut a little bit <laughs> in true Wellsian fashion. So I've smashed them all together a little bit. We're going to listen to that and then we'll talk about it. Is it true Dale walked off the movie? Well, he'll come back. If he doesn't come back, how will you finish it? looks like a girl. <laughs> uh, they all do nowadays, don't they? That's how they want to look. It's the scene. Which scene? Well, they scene. Oh, and you old guys are trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about? What happens here? I'm not really sure, Max. Uh, maybe, maybe it's here she leaves the 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 bomb. So what are the toys about? Well, be before this, she'll be pretending to look in the window at them. Oh, that is when we get around to shooting it. She's some kind of crook. Well, some kind of radical. A anyway, there's. There's some more shops there, and then the boy thinks she's been looking at these dolls. Which doll? Well, the one she... he thinks she was looking at. So, well, he goes in and, and buys it for her. What's in the package? The package? You, you mean what she's got in her bag? It was either a bomb or her lunch. The kid's package. That, that's the dog. Now tell me, Jimmy. Oh, Billy. Okay, Jimmy. There is going to be film showing that there's a doll in this package. Oh, sure. That's easy, Max. Just, just an insert. And the bomb? If there is a bomb, when does it blow up? Well, well we, we, we don't actually know. 
what do we know? You, you better ask Jake. I'd better read the script. Huh? There isn't one. Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before. Understand, Max, this isn't even a rough cut. Sure. You're gonna have to see the rest of the picture. And Jake's gonna have to shoot it. Well, like I told you, Max, an awful lot of the footage is out at the ranch. We'll be screening it for you at the party. Tell Jake he wasted my time. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Uh, that was a clip from Orson Welles' uh, movie, The Other Side of the Wind. I, I say it's a clip, but it's a bunch of clips sp- smashed together by me, so I apologize to Orson Welles and the people who put this film together. But uh, I'm joined by Jonathan Rosenbaum on the phone. Jonathan Rosenbaum is the author of Discovering Orson Welles and uh, is a, a noted Welles expert. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, what work is that, uh, that f- framing scene kind of doing? Well, one of the things that's important about it is that it's true that there's even the idea that, uh, you know, that there's no script in the film within the film. And, but, you know, the funny thing, Wells is playing a very complicated game. He wants us in some ways to think that Jake Hannaford is like him, but in other ways he's not like him. And one thing that's going on that's very important and that we haven't talked about yet in this film is the whole thing about gender. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you notice he says that the uh, hero of the film is kind of looks like a girl. Part of the, this is part of what Oya brought to the film, the idea that Jake has been sleeping with, has a habit of sleeping with his leading ladies after they've slept with his leading men. And that the reason why is that he's a, perhaps not even conscious of it himself, a closet homosexual mm-hmm. who's in love with his leading man. And, Part of what Oya is, play, is playing Hannaford in the film within the film, actually. Uh, she's the, you know, is the aggressive one, the active one. And uh, it's very hard to, re- you know, one of the things that's a real mystery in the film is reconciling the very macho type, you know, character played by Houston with the film, which is very arty. But it's not, you know, you can't even simply say it's a, parody of Antonioni, which a lot of people have been saying. That was part of Wells' original idea. But part of the film within the film actually comes across as a good film. Some of it comes across as a bad film. I think Wells really wanted to keep a lot of these options open. Mm-hmm. I think, and, and even the connection between this film and Jake Hannaford these are not easily resolvable issues. Right. I think it's a great it's great to point out there in terms of gender, and we can actually roll into a second clip uh, that does some work with that as well uh, and helps to give us uh, some flesh or put some flesh on the Jake Hannaford character, which uh, has been noted is kind of a bit of Wells, a bit of John Huston, a bit of Ernest Hemingway, conceived perhaps as a, as a Hemingway character. Um, but let's, let's go to the second clip, and let me uh, t- t- set it up a little bit. This is Jake Hannaford, who uh, I think it's safe to say is generally soused or drunk in most of his scenes. He's the director, and he's been introduced to a teacher of 
uh, Hannaford's leading man, John Dale, who was born uh, Oscar Dale and who has changed his name. Uh, so this is a clip of, of Hannaford talking to that teacher. And I'll warn viewers that there is a offensive language used in this clip. But let's hear that clip right now and we'll talk about it afterwards. You see, there was this, um, we had this teacher. It was just one of those that moved up. You mean he was a faggot? This teacher was a faggot. Mr. Hannaford, this story concerns my school. I, I'm in no position to uh, publish. Publish and be damned. Look, oh, they've run out of film. You can uh, speak off the record. Dale was in no way involved, you know. But among the boys, there was a great deal of morbid conversation, oh, I'm afraid, on unhealthy subjects. As you could imagine, with a name like Oscar. What happened to that teacher? We let him go, of course. Let him go? Hmm. What about the police? The man was sick, Mr. Hanford. Those young boys, they must have been sick after he finished with them. I, I hope you're not worried about Dale. You think I should be? Wouldn't that depend, Mr. Hanford, on your own personal interest? What are you driving at, Dr. Burroughs? Well, nothing. Nothing. I'm just his director, not his Aunt Daisy. And I'm just his English teacher. But certainly he has every reason to be grateful to you, and I'm sure that one day when one of his fine performances gets the Academy Award, why, you'll be grateful to him. Uh, notice. How careful he is not to refer to it as an Oscar. Would you like to take a dip, Dr. Burroughs? A dip? Oh, the pool! What a grand suggestion! A little more hooch would be helpful. I'll be right with you. <laughs> good, good. Where do I change? Right here, in sight of God. We all promise not to look. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose all school teachers are prigs. I suppose. Prigs or faggots. Now, now, Mr. Hannaford. Now, now, Dr. Burroughs. Again, that's a clip from Orson Welles' movie, The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, so that uh, exposes pretty quickly... Uh, uh, and baldly uh, the issues that are fairly central to the film. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, this has some relation to Wells's own youth uh, w at the Todd School in Woodstock, Illinois, as well. The, uh, the school teacher is very loosely based on uh, Roger Hill, who was Wells' own mentor. But, you know, one thing I think is unfortunate about, two, or two things that are unfortunate about this clip as it stands, one is is that it actually, the editing of this sequence, which of course you can't get when you just listen to the soundtrack, mm -hmm. is extremely aggressive. And in terms of the uh, the embarrassment and the 
tension between the two men when they're talking. And I, the one, the, my greatest difference with the way the film is edited, you know, like in this, was the inclusion of the music, because I've seen this without the piano music in the background, and it's much more powerful without it. Um, but I think it's very important that, uh, you know, like many uh, repressed, well, many repressed homosexuals, Hannaford is a, you know, homophobic. And uh, and that's part of what's, you know, the dynamic of what's going on in this scene. But the way it's edited, when you see it, is that it, is it really puts you, it's an excruciating sequence. Because mm -hmm. you don't know where you stand in relationship to it, you yeah. know, for anybody, and that's regardless of whether you're gay or straight. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's a, it's a, it's a sequence designed to make everyone squirm. Actually. Well, it's hard to tell, too, and obviously in the audio uh, clip there, and, and plus the way I uh, also had to cheat there and foreshorten that one, too, simply to get it into the program here tonight. So there's a lot no, more... No, but you, you, got the, you did get all the basic lines and things <laughs> going on in the scene. Well, there's just a lot more space in it, which is interesting, right? There's a lot more staring, and, and, and like you said, that embarrassment is there. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's so. Wells himself thought that editing was the, you know, that was the art of, the, the art of cinema was the editing, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that the he edited about one third of the film as we have it now, including this sequence. It's his editing. Oh, okay. Um, so I think it's I think that's and it's interesting that most of the editing that he did, with some exceptions are actually in the film within the film. This, this is the, probably the major sequence in the at the party in which, uh, you know, he also did the editing. Mm, well, uh, it's time for another break. Buddy Rich gives us Young Blood from the 1962 album Blues Caravan. More with Jonathan Rosenbaum on Orson Welles and castration anxiety in the just-released movie The Other Side of the Wind. Stay with us. Support for WFHB comes from listeners like you and the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is film critic and scholar Jonathan Rosenbaum. He's joining us via telephone from Chicago. Our show is That's So Jake about Orson Welles' recently released released film, The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, Jake is uh, a name that is special to this particular production. Jake, um, what's the where's the name come from, Jonathan? I don't know, actually. Uh, I don't know that it has any particular... Oh, I, th- I, I guess I read somewhere that I thought it was uh, related to what Sinatra called Wells. Maybe it's just a general, um, you know, when you say something's okay or cool or whatnot, it's Jake. I'm not sure. So, anyway. Possible. It's possible. Mm. Well, so... Now, the film is, is absolutely littered with kinds of uh, things that are meant to be and are often inside references, yet at the same time, they do as much to confuse us as to illuminate us, because (laughs) the film is not simply a portrait of Wells and his milieu, it's a critique. I mean, we have to remember that Wells was more critical of himself than any, any, even his greatest enemies were, Mm -hmm. Uh, and he really was trying to, in a sense, put the audience in a situation of freedom in terms of how they judge things. And one of the things that makes the film very difficult and challenging is that Jake is a very unpleasant character, right. even though he's very charismatic. Uh, one thing I, you know, from, because I've been fortunate enough to be friends with Oya Kodar, who, uh, you know, I think that I, I, I feel that one thing that she and Wells had in common is that they were both reclusive exhibitionists. <laughs> and this is both very much the way that Wells was an exhibitionist was, of course, in his language and the uh, all the aphorisms, you know, and you get that in Fake, and you get that, of course, in, in in a lot of Jake things that Jake says in the other side of the wind. But Oya, Oya is an exhibitionist and showing off her beautiful body, often without clothes, you know, right. that's also true in Fake and in The Other Side of the Wind. It's also interesting that Epiphake was also derived from combining stories by Wells and Oya, and that she's the one who came up with the titles for both films, mm. too. Well, let's talk a little bit about Oya Kodar. Uh, most of the reviews I've read of this film pay lip service to her. She's given script credit on the film, uh, but frequently reviews call her his lover and then note the script credit uh, rather than calling her his collaborate, collaborator, as, as you've done here. And uh, uh, I think the New York Times review noted his preference for her backside in film. So in a way, dismissing her value to Wells in this film, you've come to conclude something else essential regarding Kodar and Wells, right? Yes, well, I mean, first of all, she is an artist, which is important. She's a sculptor, mainly, and uh, and her sculpture is both abstract and erotic. And I, it's also, according to her, and I think, you know, I, this is very much Wells' film, and I think she wouldn't contest that either. Because, I mean, she's not a film person, and she's also, as I say, very reclusive. So, I mean... Her contributions to the film were basically ones that Wells wanted her to make. Hmm. And there's even correspondence from Wells that I've seen, which basically said that if anybody could finish the film, if he were to die before it was completed, the only one who could finish it was Oya. Hmm. And I think that um, it, her, her contributions took different forms. But, you know, I've read an awful lot of scripts 
by Wells that were not filmed. And she worked on many of them, not all of them by any means, but quite a few of them. And she's very specific about what she contributed. Hmm. I think in this film, what she contributed had a lot to do with the film within the film in terms of the, you know, the set decoration in some cases. In some cases, the uh, she actually directed the, the final sequence that we see from the film within the film, which has actually a giant collapsing penis actually <laughs> in it, which is almost the final nail in the coffin of a film. Yeah, I, I think that'll do it. That actually works really well as we'll, we'll go into another clip. This is a scene uh, from the film within the film. Uh, it's an on-set scene, so you'll hear no one in the clip but John Huston's character, director Jake Hannaford, shouting commands at his two stars who are on the on bed springs and preparing to have sex. Uh, uh, Johnny Dale is like a deer in the headlights, and where he was at the beginning pursuing Oya's uh, Oya Kodar's character uh, on a motorcycle. She is now the pursuer, and you could say she's caught her prey in the the mousetrap of his bed springs, uh, and there are scissors included. Now, of course, you're hardly going to be able to get most of this listening to the audio, but here we're going to hear John Huston giving direction. Let's let's roll that audio. <laughs> Suspense, baby. Pure Hitchcock. If 
this. That's it. Hold on him and goodbye, Johnny Dale. Again, that was a clip from Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. That's a little castration clip there. Uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum, what's that scene tell us? Why John Dale walked off the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, of course, it's, yeah, I think one of the things that, that made me it made me aware even more hearing, hearing just the soundtrack of how obtrusive and unnecessary a lot of the music is here. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty, it's, it's a pretty, uh, heavy scene even without the music and I don't really know it's kind of like belt and suspenders you know I think it's unfortunate that Wells did not supervise the uh, you know the use of music on this film and I, I I personally think he probably would have wanted much less music used uh, certainly in this he wouldn't have wanted music in, the, in this sequence either mm. I, I, I'm guessing you know yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it's a it's a fascinating film that kind of um, you know these these particular film within a film segments and this one kind of stands outside of it. Uh, you know, it's not really a part of the film within a film. It's a part of watching that film within a film get made. Yes, right. Yeah, so it's it's like a third film <laughs> within the film almost because it's like you know the process of that film being made. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I really think we have to regard this film as Wells most experimental film and also his most challenging. Mm. Uh I think in the and, and had he finished it himself, it, I think it would also have that status. Uh but I also think that for that reason, it's a film that we're just beginning to really come to terms with. You know, I think it in a way, if you look back at the original reviews of, you know, all of Wells' other films, even Citizen Kane, you know, the way we look at it now is very different from the way it was looked at you know, when they first appeared. Mm-hmm. But Citizen Kane was not originally regarded as a Hollywood film. Right. Now it is, partly thanks to Pauline Kael saying it was just another newspaper comedy. But uh, <laughs> now it's part of the mainstream, but it wasn't right. part of the mainstream in 1941. Right. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, this, this scene that we just heard in particular is, is kind of an evidence of, of self-loathing and self-destruction in in the Hannaford character, right? And and part of the the parallels throughout, in terms of Hemingway at least, uh, have to do with that kind of self-destructive act or the idea of not being able to accept um, something of yourself within your own art or being able to slide little little things into your art in order to sort of expose some of the issues you're having. Yes, and in fact, it's important to point out that the date in which all of the action at the party is set is the same day that uh, Ernest Hemingway committed suicide. Mm, mm. Well, so that's a very good, deliberate part of the design of the film. And it, part of it relates back to uh, the, one, the first meeting that Wells had with Ernest Hemingway when he was recording a narration for a, a documentary about Spain called This Spanish Earth by Joris Evans. And Hemingway basically objected to the way that uh, Wells was reading the uh, Hemingway's narration, and basically Hemingway started gay-baiting Wells. Right, much the way the uh, the teacher is baited uh, by Hannaford. <laughs> That's right. Right, right. right. In a way, and, but Wells, you know, they had a... The way Wells describes the incident, who knows if it was... If he was sort of like pumping it up in his description, but that they had a fight, but then they wound up as friends. But it was a kind of uneasy friendship, hmm. and uh, and I think Wells is playing on uneasy reactions to all of these things. Yeah. Um, 
I think he wants to put the audience on the spot about yeah. it. You know, it's not simply that he wants to simply, you know, present Jake Hannaford as a good guy or as a bad guy. In that sense, you could say he's like Charles Frustle King. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's time for our final break. This is Kilimanjaro Cookout, another one from B- Buddy Rich off of the album The Roar of 74, which was released actually in 1973. Here's a quick association with Wells. Ernest Hemingway's 1938 short story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, is said to reveal his fear of leaving his own work unfinished and in the hands of others. More interchange on consistently surprising Orson Welles. Stay with us. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Support also comes from The Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, and community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest by telephone is Jonathan Rosenbaum, and our subject is the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, It's just been released on Netflix. Uh, We're going to jump to the end of the film right now uh, and uh, talk about an incident with the uh, film critic in the movie uh, played by Susan Strasberg. Uh, her name is uh, Juliet, I think. Uh, Juliet Rich, I believe, is is her name. That's right. Um, so the this again is a, a kind of a a, a, a filmmaker clef, I think they, we could call it. Right. So this is one of those more specific um, connections to Wells's life with uh, the Susan Strasberg uh, playing a version of Pauline Kael. Is that is that pretty? Barbara Leeming also. Oh, okay, okay. Barbara Leeming, who wrote uh, uh, a biography of Wells. 
That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's do this final clip. And so throughout the movie, the venue for showing uh, the showing of this film within the film uh, continually shifts location. Uh, from the studio theater viewing, which we heard at the beginning of the program, to the house party thrown by Zara Valeska, played by Lily Palmer, uh, but a part written for Melina Dietrich, uh, who was a former leading lady of uh, Jake Hannaford's. And finally, this showing of the film moves to a drive-in theater where this confrontation takes place between Hannaford and Juliette Rich. Where is he now? Back there with our hostess, by the limo. Valeska. Is she leaving? Looks that way. Well, she'll have to answer a few questions first. Say goodnight for me to your actress. She was pretty good in there, that gun. She wasn't shooting at the dummies. The preferred target, I suppose, would have been me. But preferred by whom, Mr. Hannaford? You gave her the gun. Well, what does that mean? What's it supposed to mean? Don't worry. Even if she doesn't know, she'll tell us. Miss Valeska, you made just one film with Mr. Hannaford. Yes. Now, Garvey, Glenn Garvey was your leading man. Now, it is true, isn't it, that during the shooting of that film, Mr. Hannaford had an affair with Garvey's wife. Men are the subject of his films. And whoever the man is, naturally, he's got a girl, right? And whoever she is, somehow... Finally, Hannaford seduces her. He must. He has to possess her because it's the only way that he can possess him. We'll have to stop this, you know. Okay, okay, cut it, you guys. Expensive vice, isn't it? After he's had his actor's girl, he throws her away. And then he's thrown his actor away and destroyed him in the process. Maybe that's what you really want. Oh, oh. Well, he's rich. You son of a bitch of a one and a people! What happened to the critic lady? She'll live. Yeah, she'll live to write about it. Don't let him get you down, Brooksy. Do you? Not yet. Again, that was a scene from The Other Side of the Wind that's... Uh, uh, Susan Strasberg playing a character based on Pauline Kael, uh, perhaps Barbara Leeming as well, getting slapped by Jake Hannaford uh, after calling out what is, uh, I guess, probably true in the film, right, uh, Jonathan? Well, it seems to be. You know, there's, it, the film refuses to give us anything conclusive about any of the characters, but that's that's usually the case with Wells. You know, mm -hmm. he doesn't like to pass foul final judgments, you know, like even when you get Rosebud, <laughs> Citizen Kane, they say, I don't think one word can explain a person's life, you know? Mm. Uh, so I think it, I think it's, uh, it's certainly there's a heavy suggestion that uh, 
he was secretly in love with his leading man, and there's plenty of evidence in the film to support that. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, the the film within the film, and this is probably true, uh, at least in part for F for Fake as well, uh, is, and we've talked about this, you and I talked about this, I think, in our first actual uh, conversation, where Oya is a strong presence, but she's generally a silent presence in the in the films, and this, in this one, obviously, but John Dale is silent here as well, and the voice of the film is Hannaford's, you know, the voice of of the director of God in this sense, right? Uh, so uh, it's it seems the contention that Hannaford could care less about his leading ladies, but not know how to care about his leading men is is close to the truth here. Yes, and it, I do think it's part of the design of the film that the you know the party sequences is nothing but talk. Mm-hmm. And the film within the film has no talk at all. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And also, there's a sense in which Oya's character, her silence becomes a kind of silent judgment mm-hmm. on the macho goings on. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, at you know at the party, it it seems to me that that's another another element that's. Mm-hmm. Part of the myth. Well, there's a total boys' club element of the film. Obviously, uh, these these hangers on, this entourage, uh, these actors, and 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 even cineasts and the and the Brooks Otterlake character, which we didn't talk about at all, and has to be one of the central aspects of the film. Uh, and the film getting made, even uh, the Brooks Otterlake character played by Peter Bogdanovich and, and Wells and Bogdanovich's own relationship is has, has also have to be has to be central to to the film. Yes. And, you know, when you played that interview clip earlier with Wells sort of saying about the director is is overrated. That's another way of him expressing a challenge to the whole idea of machoism, too. I mean, because it's. Basically, he's trying to sort of like uh, throw a lot of doubts and questions in, into that mix right. about, you know, what we think about uh, who's in charge of a movie and what right. and what and what it expresses. I mean, it's you know, so we could even question: Is Oya in charge of you know the film within the film, or is Wells in charge? You know, it's like. It seems to me that these, this film is sort of like raising those questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly going to continue to raise those questions as people watch it and think about it some more and watch it again because it needs to be watched multiple times. We only had a little bit of uh, opportunity here to talk about the film, uh, but it's worth watching. It's available now on Netflix, as we said. It's streaming. Uh, and Netflix was uh, kind of uh, put up the finishing money for the program as well. Unfortunately, that's our time today. The uh, That's all the time we have for the show, and we're going to have to close with one more from Buddy Rich. This is hot on the heels of the slapping of the movie critic Pauline Kael by proxy. This is Critics' Choice off of Swingin' New Big Band from 1966. Buddy Rich's final concert, recorded and released as Mr. Drums, was in 1985, the same year Orson Welles died. Our thanks to Jonathan Rosenbaum for his insights into The Other Side of the Wind, a film directed by Orson Welles and partially edited by him as well. This will surely not be the last unfinished Welles project to see the light of day, or at least we hope not. Thank you, Jonathan Rosenbaum. Jonathan Rosenbaum has two new books forthcoming, both being published by the University of Illinois Press. This is a two-volume collection titled Cinematic Encounters, the first to be published in December this year, and a volume two next June. He's the author of Discovering Orson Welles, among many other great books. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange, executive producer, and today's studio engineer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. (laughs) 